Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and with me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. I got to tell you, I nearly laughed myself out of my chair when I saw the poster for this show. Good God. <laughs> Bob Sapp looking like a fat version of Zeus. And I know you get that <laughs> reference. I'm not talking about the Greek God. I'm talking about yes, some, tiny, tiny SummerSlam. Yes. Yeah, SummerSlam. Uh, uh, no holds barred. Uh, <laughs> Rip, yes, gotcha. Yes, uh, Rip. Yeah, that was his name. Rip something. I can't, that was... I, can't, I, I can't remember his last name. It wasn't. It wasn't Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle. I know that. I, I, just, <laughs> I don't remember. It was like Rip Tyler or Taylor or something like that. Anyways. Well, yeah, Bob Sapp just looking like this monster. But I mean, what a disaster! I can't believe Strikeforce booked this guy. No amount of Jimmy Lennon Jr. introducing him could really make up for for what we're about to see. You know, um, we could do the whole show on Bob Sapp. I know you don't want to do that, but no, just just no. so ridiculous. And, you know, even if I wanted to throw him a bone and just be like, hey, he's a gimmick and he makes good money, don't hate on him. When you come out to Ric Flair's music with the fancy robe, that's just heresy. I got no, I got no love for that. You better, de- you better deliver if that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and by the way, it was Rip Thomas for those that were uh, were checking checking the the correct answer for Hulk Hogan's character in No Holds Barred. It was Rip Thomas. So, anyways, uh, wait, real quick, what was the which was I think it was Suburban Commando where he picked up the guy. And he crapped in his pants. He was like, I smell dookie. No, I, I I think that was No Holds Barred. It was, was that like, No Holds Barred? It was the okay. car the car scene in the garage. Like, ah, uh, yeah. Okay. I love I love bad wrestling movies, which oh, is actually well, pretty much most of them. I was going to say, that'd be most of them, except for like The Wrestler. Pretty much other than that, it's pretty. that's pretty much all of them, so... And especially Hogan's career. Anyway. Yeah, the, the best the best part of No Holds Barred was the the, the lead opposite Hulk Hogan. You know, that was, she she was a good actress. She was like I, like where I where did they get this actress from, man? How did they find her for this movie? Because she's probably never going to be able to make a movie again after this. <laughs> yeah, I I just remember the bad guy being Kurt Fuller, who was like one of the. He was in Wayne's World. Um, he was like he worked for Rob Lowe's company or what the the what was the the TV studio, mm-hmm. and he was just real smarmy and like real fake, and they were always making fun of him. And yeah, I remember. I remember well, he was like the Ted Turner character. I mean, no, that was... no, 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 no. They had the older guy for that. This was like the like the exec that was like, you know, up and coming. He was kind of the handler for oh. uh, for Wayne and Garth. So, where are we? Seriously, this is like the farthest off like base i think we've ever gotten um well we had to we had to explain zeus come on all right yes yeah i guess we had to go down that road all right so uh quickly let's get to the fallout from four men enter one man survives which was the last strike force event that we covered so we had a brand new strike force heavyweight champion in alistair overeem after he dismantled paul buentello Uh, however as discussed on our last episode we wouldn't see overeem back in strike force for almost three years and somehow he held on to the title that entire time uh, we would also not see George Santiago, who was seen as a potential new contender for Frank Shamrock's middleweight title after he ran through Sean Salmon and Trevor Prangley in a one-night tournament. Why wouldn't he be back? Well, George himself would explain that, and uh, and he actually let us know on our most recent episode before this one. Uh, we talked with George, and that episode ran last week. It was a great conversation, so if you haven't already, download and listen and uh, and check it out. It was a great discussion. And then finally, uh, our uh, our Light heavyweight champion Bobby Southworth was beaten by Anthony Ruiz in a non-title fight, which set up a future title rematch. Also saw wings, wins from Kung Lee and Luke Stewart taking the next step in their career progression. 
All right. On November 21st, 2007, five days after Foreman entry, it was announced that Strikeforce would be leaving California for the very first time in its history, heading to Washington State for Strikeforce at the Dome. The event t- would take place at the 17,000-seat ta- Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, the main event would feature former Pride Fighting Champion Championships and K-1 fighter Bob the Beast Sap against Jan, Jan the Giant... <laughs> Easy for me to say. Yan the Giant Norte, uh, the 6'4", 350-pound beast, was an NFL vet known for his immense size and power, and he would be making his North American fighting debut. Uh, Sap's opponent would, again, be Yan Norte. He was 6'11", 330 pounds, so this would be a super heavyweight battle, almost 700 pounds of human flesh in the cage. Uh, These two are actually former training partners, so it would be on paper, an interesting pride-like surf- circus fight, I guess, if you want to want to call it that. Uh, also featured on the card would be former UFC heavyweight champion and K1 North America King Maurice Smith, and he would be taking on six-time world kickboxing champion and former WBC boxing champion Rick the Jet Rufus in a heavyweight contest. I did want to mention that, that Sap gave an interview around this time saying that he wanted Fedor after he beat Norte. He wanted Fedor. Let that sink in for a second after he beat Jan the Giant Norte. I, <laughs> what? I, what? You know, uh, I would have loved to have watched that fight. I think that uh, Fedor probably would have knocked him out just by staring at him, breathing <laughs> on him, hiccuping, burping, whatever you want to say, because I could just see uh, Fedor landing, you know, that lead right hand and, and Sap just tapping out right there. Um, but seriously, like, Phil, how long do you think it would go? Like, let's say they actually book this, give give Sap a little bit of time to dance around, Fedor yeah. to chase him. How long pretty does it go? Much, pretty much that. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much that. I think Fedor would come in, kind of feel out the distance a little bit. Sap would take a shot. Fedor would slip it, eat it, whatever, and then hit him back. And, well, pretty much, a, I think in some ways a replay of what we would end up seeing in the main event. But we'll we'll get to that. That would would not be would not have been a long night, I don't think. I would never compare Brett the Grim Rogers to Bob Sapp because because Rogers was much better. But do you remember when Rogers knocked Fedor down with like that right hand to the nose and just yep. thinking, "Holy crap." Is this guy going to get, do you remember that? I mean, I do remember that. Uh, that was, you know, obviously a, a very exciting moment. That's one of the things about Fedor though. He can take a shot. I mean, how many times, you know, we saw Randleman dump him on his head. We saw, uh, of course now they called I think they called him Ironhead with a Japanese fighter that I'm totally blanking on his name right now. Uh, but he caught him. He's a big heavyweight, looked like a spark plug with arms and legs, caught him. And uh, gave him the fish legs, as as I think Boss put it, Boss Rutten put it, like, made his legs dance and, I mean, really hurt him. And just a few seconds later, Fedor's got him on the ground. It's Kazuyuki Fujita. Yeah, I had him on the ground and wrapped up in a, in a rear naked choke and choked him out to the point where his tongue was sticking out of his mouth. So, yeah, Fedor knows how to take a shot and knows how to come back from it. Obviously, as he's gotten older, he doesn't have quite the chin that he used to, but... Yeah, unless Sap just really caught him, I, I just don't – yeah, I don't think it would have been a, a very long night for, for either fighter. So, <laughs> And that would be a good thing. Uh, thankfully, we never saw that, though. Uh, but also on this card, we would also see George Masvidal take on Ryan Healy as well as Corey Devella versus Joe Riggs. And I want to – there's some really interesting notes on Riggs uh, for this this whole entire event, really. So I'm going to dump in – or uh, not dump in. I'm going to jump in a little bit and, and delve into that. But according to an MMA Junkie article around this time, Riggs was actually a replacement fighter for Cedric Marks for this bout. 
Marks had to pull out with a shoulder injury. Uh, while at the same time, Riggs had been announced that he'd be fighting Joey Villasenor at a Strike Force Elite XC co-promoted event on March 29th, just five weeks after at the Dome, which would actually end up being Shamrock versus Lee. Uh, Ken Pavia, very well-known manager from that time, he was Joe Riggs' manager, said that Diesel planned to compete at both events. But this is that was very, very um, aggressive thinking because during my research, I learned that Riggs, who was signed to a non-exclusive contract with Strike Force, uh, which meant he could fight in other organizations, was planning to fight at an event in California in early January, but the CSAC shut down that event before it could take place. Tried to find the reason why, and I couldn't. Uh, but Riggs had apparently suffered an injury to his ribs in a car accident the day before the event, so his status was in question. Anyway, so the fact that, or the thought that he would heal in time from that, fight here, not get injured more, and then fight five weeks afterward was, again, very aggressive thinking, and it would absolutely not play out that way, and we'll, we'll delve into why in just a little bit. I want to jump back to Cedric Marks, which was a name that I mentioned, and that for MMA fans, that may be a name that's uh, familiar to you. And for all the wrong reasons uh, over the last year, his name's been in the news a lot. In March 2020, he was, uh, who, uh, Marks, who was a former Bellator competitor with almost 60 pro fights, was charged with second degree murder for the 2009 killing of April Pease, who was the mother of one of his children. Uh, who Marx was actually in a custody dispute with. And then he's also facing a cap some capital murder charges with the death penalty as a possible consequence for the January 2019 murders of an ex-girlfriend and a friend of hers. Marx actually briefly escaped from, from custody last year uh, in 2019 during a transport. So sounds like a really bad guy. Uh, thankfully, this is probably the only time we'll mention him on this podcast, but, but just a little interesting note there. So what you're saying is that talking about the Bob Sapp fight won't be the most depressing thing we discuss on the show today. Yeah, pro probably not. I mean, obviously I don't think there's anything that gets more depressing than, than murder. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Bob Sapp as much as we dislike him uh, as a fighter, not as a person, but as a fighter, uh, we'll, we'll come anywhere close to, to approaching that. Uh, but anyways, uh, I also wanted to mention that in early February, a deal was struck between Strike Force and Mark Cuban's HDNet. HDNet Fights would be presenting four events from Strike Force in 2008, starting with At the Dome. Strike Force joined, joined Maximum Fighting Championships, Sport Fight, founded by Randy Couture and Matt Lindland, M1 Global, which was the home to Fedor at the time, the IFL, Ring of Combat, and other promotions on HDNet Fights. And I also wanted to mention as part of that, uh, I tweeted out a little bit about this, and we got a tweet from longtime HDNet Access TV CEO Andrew Simon about At The Dome, and he said, quote, that was a special show in Tacoma. I was new to the business. I had just signed with my now friend Scott Coker, his first national TV deal for Strikeforce. Bob Sapp headlined, and I and didn't enjoy Jan Strikes. Also, this guy George Masvidal was in the co-main, end quote. Uh, so he said he planned to listen to the show, so if you are listening, hello, Mr. Simon. Thank you for downloading and supporting the show. All right, we want to talk about any UFC or Challengers events that were going around at this time and delve into who the UFC champions were at the time of this event. BJ Penn was now the lightweight champion as Sean Shirk had been stripped of the title by the UFC after testing positive for steroids after beating Hermes Franca in July of 2007. Uh, Penn cut up and submitted Joe Daddy Stevenson in an absolute bloodbath at UFC 80 in January of 2008 in England. 
GSP beat Matt Hughes for the interim welterweight title at UFC 79 in December of 2007. Matt Sarah was supposed to face Hughes after coaching against him on the Ultimate Fighter, but Sarah suffered a back injury and had to pull out. So instead, GSP got the interim title shot and won, setting up a rematch with Sarah down the line to unify the titles, and that would end up happening. Anderson the Spider Silva was still reigning uh, as the middleweight champion in the UFC. Quentin Rampage Jackson was still the light heavyweight champ. And Minotaro Noguera defeated Tim Sylvia via third-round guillotine at UFC 81 to win the interim UFC welterweight, I'm sorry, uh, heavyweight title. Uh, Randy Couture had turned down a fight with Noguera, which it looked like it was due to money issues that he didn't like the offer, and he essentially relinquished the title in the process. So rather than, uh, you know, officially strip Couture of the title, they went the interim route, which we've seen commonly in the UFC. Around the time of this event, UFC 82, Pride of a Champion, took place on March 1st, a week after at the Dome. The UFC was clearly on a roll. The event, which took place at the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio, drew over 16,000 fans for a $2.2 million gate and 325,000 pay-per-view buys. In the main event, the UFC and Pride middleweight titles were unified when Anderson Silva and Dan Henderson uh, clashed, and the Spiders submitted Hendo with a second-round rear naked choke. Also in the card, Diego Sanchez, Josh Koscheck, and Andre Arlovsky all came away with stoppage victories, while Yushin Okami knocked out the late Evan Tanner with a knee as well. Sounded like a very entertaining event. Hey, Phil, i got to ask you, when did the UFC stop naming their their pay-per-views? Uh, you know, like, obviously we know their numbers, but Pride of a Champion, was that a regular thing that they were doing for all 82, where they had, like, a, a subtitle of it, or was it just that one? Or They were you know? definitely... Yeah, they were. I, I do not know the answer to that. They were definitely still uh, naming events. Obviously, at that point, I mean the the other UFC events that we've talked about uh, that we've mentioned as we've gone through these events were still being named. I'm quickly trying to research that and see when they stopped doing that. Uh, it looks like oh man, they've got so many events at this point. It, it's hard to uh, it's hard to go hard to go through all of them. But I'm scrolling through real quick to see. Probably when. Okay, when, here we go. UFC. So we just talked about UFC 82. Yeah. Um, I see 80, 88 was Breakthrough. <laughs> and I think that was, oh, no, 97 was Redemption. 99, The Comeback. Declaration, Relentless was, or Invincible was UFC 112. See if there's, I think that might be, nope, 125 was, so that's weird. So they, they, I think they, it looks like they slowly phased them out because they all say, you know, the other ones all say Silva versus Belfour, uh, Penn versus Fitch, you know, that sort of thing. And, and so, and, but then you sneak, see resolution snuck in right around there. So I, I think 125, I, I think it was 125, January 1st. So New Year's day, 2011. Uh, I think resolution, I think that was the last one because as I keep scrolling up, I just see so and so versus so and so. So yeah, that's a that's a very good question, but I think it I think that was the last one. Maybe they got smart. They ran out of names. They got to like roadblock well, roadblock I mean, and backlash <laughs> and they're like, forget it. It's not worth it yeah, anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean at some point at some point you're gonna run out of you know, you're gonna run out of words. Yeah. So yeah, that looks like that was the last one because I'm all the way in 2013 now, and I all I see is so and so versus so and so. So yeah, that you know, except for like you know, at the troop or the for the troops or fight for the troops or whatever. But yeah, yeah. Do you and think so? Yeah, it looks like it was 125. Do you think that that is a pro wrestling 
legacy thing? Like, do you think that the idea of having a, a title for a pay-per-view is because pro wrestling had titles for their pay-per-views or is that just what they wanted to do sort of in the, the origins of, of mixed martial arts, having a name like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, yeah. I, I think it probably came from wrestling cause I yeah. don't think boxing, I don't, I don't know boxing super well, but uh, no. I don't know modern boxing super well. And you know, I, I think it's always to my knowledge, it's always been, so-and-so versus so-and-so. So yeah, I, there, I you know, there there have been a few grudge matches like, uh, you know, um, Oscar De La Hoya and, and Julio Cesar Chavez, you know, like they've, they've had some kind of names, you know, like Revenge or, you know, okay. stuff like that, but certainly not as a matter of course in boxing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, UFC is so firmly entrenched. I, I don't think they need that anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get... I mean, the other side of it is oh, UFC roadblock. So, okay, well, who's, I'm not going to buy it because of the name. I'm going to buy it because of who's on the card. Yeah. So I'd rather know who the main event is than, than you know, some, you know, another synonym of carnage or damage or, you know, whatever. So Sold out. Sorry, yeah. you can move on, Phil. No, I think you need it. <laughs> I do think you need it in wrestling, though. Yeah. I think you need it there. But anyways. All right, so there was a, a, a Strikeforce Challengers event right around this time. It was a few weeks before at the Dome. Young Guns 2 took place at the San Jose Civic Auditorium. Not very many recognizable names on the card. Future UFC competitor Darren Uyen and Oyama, uh, who I, I'm just going to butcher that last name until we I don't have to say it anymore. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to get it nailed down. U, Uyen, Uyen Oyama, I think that's it. Uh, he submitted Andrew Valadarez with a first-round rear naked choke. And in the main event, Luke Rockhold, one of just a handful of fighters, to hold gold in both Strike Force and the UFC would make his hexagon debut, knocking out Josh Neal in under two minutes. Rockhold, someone we'll be discussing at length in future episodes. Just a little bit on, on Luke Rockhold here. I recently started following him on Instagram, and he's quite the, the celebrity model, uh, lots of various uh, glamour shots. But in terms of his his Strike Force legacy, I'm looking forward to when we talk about that because, I mean, I put him right there with. Gilbert Melendez and Kung Lee and Josh Thompson as real legends of Strike Force and one of the guys who really made a name for himself in the UFC as a champion and who was able to transition and uh, you know Rockhold was it's like you know a great fighter out of American Kickboxing Academy uh, he's big guy could kick well could you know he was good on the ground he was very much a star of Strike Force and one of the pillars and one of the guys who when UFC eventually took Strike Force over, you were really excited about seeing Rockhold take on these UFC guys. So I'm looking forward to his impact. He's he's definitely one of the, the, the I think one of the legends of Strike Force. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I'm I'm hoping we're able to get him on the show. I haven't asked him yet. When we get a little closer to, you know, his main run. Uh, we'll look to have him on, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we can have him on, but 100%, one of the guys that should be up there in the conversation with, you know, Kung and Frank and guys like that as, as the, you know, personification of strike force, maybe a little, maybe, maybe because he had so much success in the UFC as well, he doesn't get, you know, he doesn't get mentioned as much because he, he really seemed to have maybe equal success in both, uh, obviously did better in strike force cause he never lost there, but yeah, it, it's I 100% don't disagree with you at all. So hopefully we'll be able to talk to him in the future. Uh, but let's get into uh, the event details for At the Dome. Change of pace on commentary for this one as Kenny Rice, 
who would go on to be the longtime host of HDNet's Inside MMA, would provide play-by-play with Frank Trigg adding color. Also, the commentators would have access to CompuStrike, which is familiar to most fight fans today. It gave them in-fight statistics to reference live, which they used liberally throughout the event. And I, I think it actually helped a lot. I really, really... I really thought it just added a lot to the to the broadcast, and just overall, Kenny Rice and and Frank Trigg were just much better than uh, than Brian Weber and 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 Frank Shamrock, in my opinion, on commentary. So I think it was overall the HDNet deal was already paying off. Uh, let's let's highlight the undercard. Not going to go through through every single fight in detail, but just talk about some of the main fights and and you know that sort of thing. But Nathan Coy, who would go on to compete on the Ultimate Fighter as a member of American Top Team, and would also fight in Strike Force a few more times, got a nice knockout of Dave Corshane. Uh, Zach Skinner defeated Scott Schaefer via unanimous decision in a featherweight bout. Uh, Mike Hayes defeated Mike, Matt Kovach via unanimous decision in a heavyweight bout, far from a technical masterpiece. It was a pretty entertaining fight overall. Uh, two inexperienced guys who would go on to become very experienced. Uh, Hayes has, has fought and beat some big names in his career. He's got wins over UFC vets Jeff Monson and Fabiano Scherner, while he did lose to Andre Arlovsky and Alexi Olenek. Uh, he would also beat Kovac in a rematch. These two would lock horns again in 2011, and he retired. Uh, that would be Hayes retired in 2016 with a 2012 and two record. Kovac is actually still active. He holds a 17 and 18 record. He's lost to Cabbage Carrera, but does have a win over a fellow competitor on this card, Maurice Smith. All right, next fight in a welterweight fight, Lyle Fancy Pants Beer Bomb. Lyle Fancy Pants Beer Bomb. In case you're not a longtime MMA fan or not a longtime Strikeforce fan, that name may not be familiar to you, but a very familiar name to me, and we'll get to that in just a second. He defeated Relentless Ray Perales via submission, uh, which came via guillotine choke at 119 of the third round. Lyle Fancy Pants Beer Bomb is one of the most colorful, unique names in MMA history. I knew him personally. Uh, in fact, I managed him for a little time. The only the only fighter that I ever managed uh, actually did some negotiation on his part or on 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 his behalf with Strike Force uh, for a fight that he for, that he had, which we'll discuss later on. Uh, we got got some other stories about Lyle that I'll share as we go along. But he was I gotta very- I gotta ask you, Phil. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, we're going to talk about his his pants later. I guess why he got the name Fancy Pants. But uh, did you ever, uh, did, as his manager, did you ever have any, uh, you know, or doing PR for him? Did you ever have any say in sort of his image or anything or like that? Or did he ever share with you a pair of those pants? You ever try them on? I, no one was looking. It's two, <laughs> it's two very different questions. Uh, <laughs> no, I never got my hands on on you know a, a pair of those shorts. Not that I would have wanted them. Um, to be fair, but. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, to me, I, yeah, I did talk about his image with him. Uh, to me, Lyle, he had a very unique story, very, very unique story. He had been in prison due to drug issues and had overcome that. And, and uh, you know, his his shorts, I thought, made him look really unique. They were very dorky and kind of square and early 90s, very outdated looking. And uh, But I think that was part of his appeal, you know. And it, like I said, they made, they made him stand out. And, and so, yeah, that was something that I, let's keep going with this, you know, and fancy pants, like I said, is a very unique nickname. Nobody else has got one or would necessarily want a nickname like that in a sport filled with the, you know, the destroyer, the crusher, you know, the mangler, the, all the stuff like that. 
you know, having a, a nickname like Fancy Pants just is it sounds different. So I, I thought I thought we should go with that. And, and it was already in place by the time I worked with him. But I definitely didn't try to steer him away from, you know, for I, sure. and I did interview him uh, back in the day. And, he, you know, he was really a nice guy. I did find a pre-fight interview of him on YouTube. And uh, he had this great quote. He said, I don't want to hurt him but I do want to make him feel bad. And I felt that was like the perfect <laughs> like gentleman. emotionally or physically? Or... <laughs> I think he said, you know, he wants to do enough to win, but he doesn't want, really want to ruin the guy's life or anything, you know? So um, that's exactly what a guy named Fancy Pants would say. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he, he definitely uh, not a Luke Rockhold, but definitely somebody who um, has a place in the history of strike force. Uh, Are you saying and, Lyle's not as handsome as Luke Rockhold or you're talking about his in cage, uh, accomplishments? <laughs> well, well, let's face it, you know, um, only Shawn Michaels is more handsome than, than Luke Rockhold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to, like Luke, uh, uh, Shawn Michaels today. Or... <laughs> Age is a killer. I'm talking, okay. you know, uh, mid 1990s. No, what are you doing to me, Phil? Is, you're trying to, you're just, you're trying you, to get me are, off track here. You are serving these up and I'm just <laughs> spiking them down. No, what I what I mean is Luke Rockhold is, as you might say, one of the faces maybe on the Mount Rushmore of Strike Force. Maybe Beer Bomb is not, but he definitely is somebody I associate with the Strike Force product and the Strike Force history. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. I'll try to lay off you a little bit. Uh, <laughs> All right, Prowlis was, uh, Birwan was 4-0, had a win over UFC vet Gerald Strebent coming in. Prowlis was much more experienced. He was 12-18, and 18, uh, having made his debut in 2000. I actually recognized that name when I read it, and I realized, as I did my research, that he fought for Gladiator Challenge, a, a client of mine, many times, and I actually helped promote cards that he was on. So that's that's why his name was so familiar to me. Uh, he'd lost to Dennis Hallman and Brock Larson, two big show vets in his career. This entire fight, it was all fancy pants. First two rounds featured takedowns for beer bomb, followed by strikes. And in the third, he got a submission win via modified guillotine. Very nice showing for fancy pants. He'd be back in strike force multiple times. So like I said, we'll be talking more about him. In his post-fight interview, Lyle thanked his sponsors and then his mom for making his fight shorts, which got a big reaction from the crowd. He's a local Washington native. So, you know, I'm sure he had some fans, uh, friends and fans in atten attendance. But yeah, the fancy pants things comes from the, and they're like, like I said, very much 90s, early 90s, neon, uh, Zubaz, you know, like that kind of style, not, not flowing and big, but just the print was was very early 90s uh, stuff that my mom made for me for for my pants when I was a, a little kid so yeah but not uh, not the kind of stuff Reebok would uh, endorse maybe back they... then maybe they would have back then but not today <laughs> for sure. okay but yeah it was uh I, you know it was a good win for 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 Lyle I thought he had a good showing not not the most crowd pleasing fight but I, it was definitely a big win for him I think. All right, moving along. Uh, Michael Clark defeated Josh Bennett via TKO doctor stoppage at the end of the second round in a heavyweight fight. Uh, to me, Clark was clearly the better fighter from the outside. So outside, he was in better shape physically, landed some really good shots. Uh, by the end of the first round, though, uh, Bennett had a, a pretty good cut near his eye, which was swelling. Uh, I will mention I saw Chael Sonnen and the late Robert Fallis in the corner of, of Bennett, as well as, I think, uh, Strikeforce Director of Communications, Michael Fromovitz, cage side he was uh your boss and mine when we worked for strike force yep. uh then early in the second round they brought in ryan schultz on commentary briefly to promote an upcoming ifl card which was 
kind of interesting. Again, that's some of the, the turnaround for HDNet getting their ROI there. Uh, but Bennett, to his credit, he kept pushing forward. He even got a takedown later in the second round, but the ref and the doctor took a look at his eye and stopped the fight. It was pretty badly swollen, and he even had a cut on top of the swelling, uh, which was pretty nasty, and his vision had to be impeded. So so they, they stopped it. So it was entertaining for kind of the, I guess, the bar fight quality fight that this was. But um, I wasn't yeah. a huge <clears throat> fan, but what did you think, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I it's it's – First of all, never judge anybody's uh, ability to fight how they look. Uh, that's not fair. We and know. We just, know how you feel about these guys in your, but, your, uh, your obsession this is, with Paul Buentello. And <laughs> I, Here, here's the deal. You feel at this point. Here's the deal, right? Like, you know, I grew up on Vince McMahon in the 80s, okay? So I know how to book a card, right? you got to book the card based off of the fact you got to make the fans think what you're watching is absolutely something special and something unique and unusual and not like your dad is fighting okay and so i just question whether we want to be highlighting these kind of guys when they don't look like they're badasses particularly when you just went over the ufc card you know and you're, you're we're talking about that's the competition. And then, you know, Bennett did not look good at all. He was not aesthetically pleasing. And so I, I don't know. Um, you can't obviously negotiate that sort of thing. But as an observer, as I'm watching this fight card, I'm not feeling like I'm watching the best fighters in the world when I'm watching this. I feel like I'm watching maybe some tough guy. So that's kind of the thing that sort of sort of struck out at me a little bit. Um you know, it was, um, you know, it, it, it was a decent sort of like slugfest sort of thing, but I was not, you know, basically pleased. Do you think I'm being too critical here? No, no, no? I, I agree with you. I was kind of, that's essentially what I was saying is it was kind of a, a, a glorified bar fight in a way, yeah. you know, not really. Uh, but so, so two things there though. One, and this is very much pro wrestling ism, but the idea is that if you, if the, if you look like the people in the crowd, why are people going to pay to see you? You know, that's, and it's kind of the Roy Nelson thing. You know, Dana, it was never a secret that Dana was not a fan of Roy Nelson, but as long as he was winning, I mean, what are you, what are you going to do? You know, I, and I, to me, I think there's a place for it. I do think that there's a place for it in, in the, again, if you can win and look, you know, not look aesthetically pleasing, then I think you, I don't think you should not be on a card simply because you don't look good, but the the bar for your performance is going to be higher. I mean, we just, you know, it's the whole Brockus in WWF thing that he looked like a million bucks but couldn't do anything. And, you know, he got a couple shots because he looked fantastic, even if he wasn't a good worker. Meanwhile, you know, guys like Brad Armstrong who, you know, well, Brad Armstrong looked great, but guys that, that maybe didn't look as good physically. In, a little in bit smaller. Wrestling. Yeah. Yeah, but we're yeah. smaller. Uh, the, but could work, you know, work crazy good matches won't, you know, they won't maybe never even get a shot. So it, it just, it, you know, it's unfortunate, but it is an MMA, not as much as it is in pro wrestling, but it is an MMA. And as much as I'm kind of picking on some of these guys, uh, you know, there's a part of me that I, I said, I was a big fan of the headhunter. I was a big fan of Buentello partially because he did look like a guy 
that walked in off a construction site or something like that, but could still perform and, and, and get big wins and get big knockouts. And for a guy like me, who looks more like a guy that walked in off a, a you know, a construction site, or for me more out of a, like out of a cubicle or something like that <laughs> versus, you know, I look more like that guy than I do like a guy who's, you know, a power lifter or something like that. So uh, to me that I, I identify more with a guy that's got a gut. And, and so to me, that's so, but at the same time, I don't want to see a card filled with those guys either. So it, it's, I think it's got its place, but I just think there are fewer slots for that than there are for, you know, guys that, that do look, look good. And the other thing is that yes, MMA fighters, absolutely. The, you know, if you know any of them, they, many of them are obsessed with how they look and, you know, count their abs and, and all that stuff, but that is definitely not the main focus. And, and most of the guys, they look like that because of the insane amount of training that they do. It's not because they're necessarily, Oh, I'm trying to build up my traps or, you know, I want, you know, these huge quads or whatever, No, it's whatever comes from the incredible amount of training that they have to do, especially if they're full time. And that's, you know, if anybody, if any of us did that, we'd look, you know, we'd probably look really, really good. So yeah, we're, we're kind of, but I, I, one more thing, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but with Coker, this has always been his booking strategy is the undercard. There's not a ton of attention paid to the undercard. And if you're wherever the local market is, you want the undercard filled with guys from that local market. Cause they're going to sell your tickets. Yes, the main card, the main event especially is going to sell or a better sell. But the undercard guys are the, the ones out there that are basically saying, hey, you know, I'm going to I'm going to sell 50 tickets to my friends and family or, you know, mm-hmm. at the local gyms there, you know, the local gyms will sell. I don't know if they, they still do this, but they used to sell tickets for their, you know, for the upcoming events for their guys. If they had guys fighting on that event, you need those guys to be able to do that. So the the, the quality of the fighter is not necessarily you know, the, the number one prime, uh, thinking when it comes to booking the undercard, it's who's going to buy, who's going to sell those local tickets. And Coker has always done that. And, you know, it's a little less so in, in Bellator because, you know, they're a national promotion and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think we were definitely still seeing part of that. And then this, this, these were two local guys. So that was, that was definitely part of it. Yeah. I think maybe it's this card and the whole collectiveness of Bob Sapp and the men of end and his opponent and, the heavyweights that we see on this card, I just think it was like another thing to not <clears throat> be the best uh, showing for Strike Force for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, and and I and and all that I'm explaining is just the mentality. It's not necessarily a stamp of approval on it, uh, especially after this card. So, uh, but by getting back to it, neither Clark nor Bennett would be back in Strike Force. But there's some very interesting notes on these two, uh, so I want to share a few of those. Clark would fight and lose to some really big names in his career including Mike, Mike Kyle, the late Ryan Jimmo, Travis Brown, and current Bellator fighter Lorenz Larkin. Uh, in addition, he would be the very last opponent for Daniel Pewter in 2009. Uh, lastly, Michael Clark would be the one that would end the career of Josh Bennett. That's right. Uh, in 2012, these two would rematch, and Clark would knock Bennett out with a spinning back elbow, and then Clark would retire in 2016 with a 10-14 and 14 record. Bennett, for his part, would lose to current UFC fighter Todd Duffy in 2008, which was his highest-profile opponent. Interestingly, Bennett would face both Mike Hayes and Matt, Matt Kovach from this card, beating Kovach once, losing to him uh, another time, and then losing to Hayes in both his fights with him. So he fought those two guys a total of four times. Uh, as mentioned, Bennett retired after his second loss to Clark in 2012, ending his career at 16-15. and 15. 
All right. George Gamebred Masvidal defeated Ryan Healy via unanimous decision in a light heavy, uh, light, I'm sorry, lightweight bout. Uh, these two combatants, they seem to be pretty evenly matched with Masvidal holding a 13 and two record. Healy standing at 14 and three. Uh, Gamebred was, was riding a seven fight win streak coming in, which included a TKO win over Matt Lee at strike forces playboy mansion show, which is in the archives. Make sure you check that out. Uh, as well as a head kick knockout of Eve Edwards at a Bodog fight event. Healy had won three of his last four, losing only to Razor Rob McCullough in the WEC. Uh, this was a big fight, no question. And, and I think it delivered. It was a, a back and forth fight. Both both men had their moments. But man, uh, Healy's nose looked just really gross after this this uh, after this scrap. And that had to have an impact on the judges with, with Gamebred getting a unanimous decision win. I'll, I'll mention that you know, Healy, as uh, I believe Gorilla Monsoon would have said, had a, oh man, now it was proboscis. It was a pro- oh, prominent proboscis, I think, <laughs> as, as Gorilla used to say. So, yeah. had, you know, kind of a big nose and, and so kind of a big target and the bridge of his nose just looked really, really gross. And, and I think that helped Gamebred get the win. Gorilla never even met Triple H either. So can you imagine if he had oh, been yeah, around? He did. Yeah, he did. He died in 97. He was part of WWF. So yeah, no, he definitely met Triple H. Oh, okay. Well, I got to go and find out if he actually called one of Triple H's matches. That'd be great. I, if I don't think so. I remember uh, Gorilla was the like WWF commissioner because he was in poor health the last couple of years of, mm-hmm. of his life. And he, you remember that they did the thing where uh, Vader splashed him and that was like a, from the rope. And that was just a huge, huge deal. And I think, oh, like, okay. I think that was 95. And mm-hmm. uh, he, yeah. So, and, and Triple H came over to WWF in, uh, in 90 in 95 or 96 i know he because you remember he i think it was 95 when he came over because he wrestled the ultimate warrior at wrestlemania in, in 1996 and did that very quick squash job so yeah, oh, uh, yeah. And, and just to clarify monsoon actually died in 99 not 97 so i am nearly positive that they uh, uh that they met although i don't think uh i don't think he ever called any of his matches <laughs> Yeah, he would have called him a uh, you know a triple prominent proboscis for sure. Yeah, something, if he got a chance to go. <laughs> something along those lines. Right. So I'm not really sure uh, how I felt about the the the, the stoppage uh, to look at the cut. So this is before the end, right? And um, I have this thing about MMA where I get it. I know the origins, and I have full respect for the fact that it's not a real fight. That 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 it's not like a a street fight. <laughs> But, you know, when they stop to look at something and then they put them back in the position, I think it's a real momentum disruptor for a fan. I realize that they have to do that. But we saw we saw some of this, um, you know, in this in this fight as well, when they had to stop, look at it and then put them back on the ground. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you feel like like should they just finish the round? I mean, you would never see in boxing where, you know, they they would, you know, put them back in the exact position that they were educate me help me understand here phil like like why is that the best way to do it when you've got a guy who's in bad shape why not just let them finish yeah i i agree i they're not i mean they're stopping it to see if the they're they're pausing to see if the fight should be stopped if the fight is over Mm -hmm. so how do you do that unless you stop and let the doctor take a look at the cut you know they try you know no coaching while that's happening and Mm-hmm. I've seen it times where they don't wipe the blood away. They, you know, try to leave them as is as possible. Uh, you know, so I, I just, I think it's one of those necessary evils. I, I, I can see both sides of it. It's like, yeah, if a guy's cut bad enough, but, but then the issue becomes 
a lot of these guys don't want to stop. You know, they, they, they're not going to stop for a cut for, for anything. So they, you know, you've seen how many times have you seen a guy get cut real bad? And you're like, all right, well that's over. And the fighters all, you know, all mad because the, the, the doctor stopped it. So it's one of those things where, yes, it's a simul at the end of the day, it's a simulated fight street fight. You know, it's not True. a real, it's, it's a, it's a competition. And I think it should be that way. I wouldn't be a fan of it if it was a, just a straight up tough man contest. You know, I, I, I like the competitive nature of it, but you know, in this case, it was on the bridge of the nose. So it wasn't going to impede his vision. That's kind of the main reason why they stopped cuts or they stopped fights to look at cuts is, is it causing blood to go into the eyes, which is causing, you know, the, the, the vision to be impeded. And so then he can't properly defend himself. So you got to stop the fight. But in this case, it was on the bridge of the nose. So there was, it wasn't going to get into his eyes enough to where he was blinded or anything like that. So yeah, that part I was like, well, then now they're just checking to see if like you can see bone, it's just too deep and you got to stop it. So yeah, I, this one in particular was questionable because it wasn't going to stop his vision, but overall I think they're, I think they're necessary even if I don't like them. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but in his post-fight interview, Masvidal said he was gunning for the strike force title. Uh, and he actually would eventually get a title shot though. It wouldn't be for a while. This would be the start of a slide for Healy as he would lose four more fights after this one. He would not be back in strike force, but his brother Pat would fight for the promotion multiple times. Uh, Ryan would uh, would retire in 2014 with a 25-14-1 record. And again, Gamebred would be back in strike force, uh, but despite saying that he was good, would be gunning for the lightweight title, he would not be back until 2011, which is three years after this. So uh, we'll be talking more about him in, in coming episodes, but not for a while. It was kind of cool to see a young uh, Mostoval. Like he was just like this young, fresh-faced kind of kind of dude and so different than how he looks now. And yeah. this is, for, for anyone, you know, listening, this is why we love Strike Force is that so many of these guys and girls, you know, male and female athletes came through Strike Force and then they got on this huge stage in the UFC. But if you're if you love the the, the fighters and you love the fighting, like you get to see them developing here during this stage. And we saw that. I mean, we saw him. You know, Mazdaval's a little bit more cautious here. Uh, he's 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 becoming who he's going to be as a fighter, and uh, he's learning. And all of a sudden, you see him on the bigger stage, and you're like. Hey, I know what this guy's going to do. I know his tendencies because you were a Strike Force fan, and so I think that's one of the th- things that's so cool about Strike Force is just, man, all, a lot of these guys came through. And I mean, look at Daniel Cormier. Like, you know, what, what would have happened if there's no Strike Force? And you know, does UFC eventually sign Daniel Cormier? I, yes. I don't know. You know, yeah. But no, but I, is I he as good as? I mean, a lot of these guys needed Strike Force. You know, you put them in the UFC right out of amateur. It's like. They're dead, you know. You, you know, yeah. look at look at Aaron Pico in Bellator. Um, you know, he's like this huge wrestling star, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, he gets knocked out a couple times. You know, and so it's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, so you just you just never know. Like the importance of strike force in the history of MMA is so significant. Sorry. No, you're one hundred percent on. And and I will be running an episode with uh, an interview with George Gorgeous George Garcia of MMA Junkie Radio. Uh, I think a couple of weeks from, from when this episode drops and we actually talk about exactly that. Would the UFC be where it is today without strike force as far as the talent infusion? And I said, no. And, and George said essentially, yes, but it just may have taken longer, but it, it's basically like a guy like Cormier, if he doesn't have strike force, 
maybe he comes in the UFC before he's ready and loses, you know, a couple fights quickly. And then we never hear from him again. So it, you could make, I mean, obviously it's all hypothetical. So who knows? But I mean, you know, one thing that's not hypothetical is Ronda Rousey. I mean, Dana White said he would never do women's MMA and look at what Ronda did for strike force. And all of a sudden, I mean, Ronda carried strike force for a few years before, you know, Conor McGregor was the next big thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you could like because there's no way Ronda would have had a career in MMA if it were not for Strikeforce. It would it never would have happened. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's yeah, it's just one of those things where I, there are some parts of this that are hypothetical, and there's some where it's just very clear, uh, you know, that that there was a massive impact there. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but anyways, let's, let's get back to this. We got the main card. We finally arrived there uh, in the first bout on the main card. Fast Eddie Ellis defeated the Red Nose Pitbull. Bull. <laughs> has decision at 170 pounds. Got to be one of the worst nicknames I've ever heard. Um, I don't know a whole lot about Pitbulls, so I don't. Maybe the Red Nose part is like a. Is that like a specific, you know, kind of a Pitbull? I don't know, but I'm just not a fan of of that at all. So. Maybe he uh, had a red nose and he looks I, like yeah, a pit bull. I, I, he's kind of a pasty white guy, so maybe his nose would get real red. I don't know. But two very experienced fighters here had almost 70 pro fights between the two of them. Ellis was 13, 15, and 1, while Berger was 19, 17, and 2. Uh, Berger was a longtime veteran, having made a, a his MMA debut back in 1998. He had a couple fights in the UFC in 2002, having a loss to Benji Radich overturned because of strikes to the back of the head, which I went back and watched and actually kind of disagreed with. But anyways, uh, and he also lost to Robbie Lawler, Lawler via punches. Uh, he's also lost. He had also lost to Dean Thomas, Jake Shields, and George Masvidal in the years heading up to this fight. So he'd fought a lot of big, big name fighters. Uh, not a ton to say about the fight itself. I will say the commentary was just so much more professional with Rice and Trigg on the call. And as I said earlier, the CompuStrike data really helped a lot. Uh, the deal with HDNet seemed to be paying off right away. Also, Eddie Ellis had Matt Lindland and Dennis Hallman in his corner, which is a pretty good team uh, to have coaching you. No, no doubt about that. But another fight where both fighters scored some points and had some highlights, but Ellis was the smarter fighter and used a takedown in the third round to really cement the win for himself. He was quite exhausted when the, uh, when the, when the final bell rang, but he got the unanimous decision nod. And I think that was, uh, I think that was, uh, yeah, I think that was, I think it was just the way that it went, but it was definitely a, a, a good fight for Ellis and, and yeah, big one for him. Uh, neither fighter would compete for strike force. Again, Berger would lose six of his last eight fights to close out his 14 year career in 2012, the 21, 23 and two record. Ellis would actually make it onto season 16 of the ultimate fighter. So you may recognize his name. He beat David Mashad and lost to Colton Smith, Colton Smith, excuse me. And he left the sport in 2017 with a 21, 17 and one record. All right. We are at the co-main event. Maury Smith defeated Rick Rufus via submission coming from an arm bar at 153 of the first round in a heavyweight bout. This was a rematch of a previous 2003 K1 fight, which saw Rufus take a decision victory over Smith. Rufus, the brother of fellow kickboxer and longtime top-tier MMA coach Duke Rufus, who I've also mentioned is a former client of mine, had had a lot of success in both kickboxing and boxing. He had won world titles in three weight classes in kickboxing and held a 13-5 and record in pro boxing and won a, as I mentioned earlier, a, had won a WBC belt uh, during that part of his career. So why couldn't Duke Rufus help CM Punk? Uh, 
You know, I, t- I, was, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't working with Duke during that time, but I will say there's only so much you can do. With, you know. I mean, that's no disrespect to CM Punk. I, no, I really don't. That sounds disrespectful, but I'm just saying a guy in his 30s with really no real, you know, combat, um, combat sports experience. Because uh, you'd say, oh, well, Kung Lee was in his 30s when he came to Well, yeah, he was also a world champion kickboxer and, and you know, a, a, a all-American D2 wrestler. So he had a bunch of experience in combat sports in his background. I, CM Punk is, you know, just a guy that loved kickbox, loved Muay Thai, and loved MMA. I don't think he had ever trained it seriously before he got into the sport. So, you know, what, I think what if- do you do with a guy like that? Well, you know, CM Punk already won, actually. You know, he's 36 or 37 when he tried. But, I mean, he made weight. I mean, he cut weight. Like, like he, he he's a winner to me because he did that whole thing. And he treated, and he didn't, he didn't have any weight. Problem. He cut a lot of weight. He got in shape. He did the walk. And God knows what he would have happened if he wasn't with, you know, a good camp. So, say what you say. I don't know how many 37-year-old guys you could put in the UFC and expect them to be dominant. I mean, it just... It's extraordinarily unlikely. Yeah, no. One, yeah. I, like I said, no disrespect to him at all. I, I give him all the respect in the world for trying and trying more than once. And yeah, he got a leg up and, and he had the money to train full time from the very beginning. So, you know, very few people can can say that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I give him all the credit in the world for really putting his reputation on the line. And, and you know, he did it. So, uh, but anyways, uh, Maurice Smith was a former UFC heavyweight champion and a three-time world kickboxing champion, despite having only a four and eight record at the time, uh, which we would never see this happen today. Uh, <laughs> he'd beaten Mark Cole via decision in 1997 to win the UFC heavyweight title. After that, he defended the title against Take Abbott and then lost the belt to Randy Couture. He had returned to kickboxing in 2000, fighting nine times over the next seven years. And this would be Maurice's second fight in, in MMA since two, the year 2000. He had been coaching in the IFL. And it actually fought fellow coach and also fellow UFC legend Marco Huas in a super fight in 2007, beating him. And now he was back in MMA again. This would be a pretty quick one. Uh, Marie Smith had, a, had his longtime training partner, Frank Shamrock, in his corner, as well as fellow UFC veteran Ivan Salaveri. Another UFC vet, Mike Van Arsdale, was in Rufus's corner. After a little bit of feeling out on the feet, Smith got a takedown of Rufus getting into half guard. Uh, Rufus just, I mean, he just didn't have much to offer uh, on the mat. I mean, there, there's was very little here. And Smith eventually got a straight arm bar from full amount, which you don't see a lot of straight arm bars, but he listed it, got the tap from Rufus and Rufus's arm was clearly hurting afterwards, but really pretty quick. Not, not a whole lot to this fight. Yeah. I was let down by the fight. I, you know, thought it was a little bit boring. Neither one of the guys to me looked like they had a lot of enthusiasm and were really excited about the opportunity. Rufus didn't really offer anything and, you know, Maurice was able to finish him with the arm bar. But um, I was expecting to see a little bit more uh, striking, kickboxing action, Uh, but, you know, we got a submission. Um, I don't know, there may have been just Scott Coker wanting to book some of his buddies. Uh, we talked about this. We could we could sort of criticize or offer commentary on the booking of this whole card. But it was another thing that to me just, you know, up until now, we're seeing a lot of inconsistency with the Strikeforce shows. Some shows are really good. Others are like, this is not really a Strikeforce show. And this is just another element here that was like, yeah, these guys don't seem like they fit entirely with what Strikeforce is trying to do. Yeah, this was not a great card, uh, and we're, we only got one more fight after this one, but this was not a great card, 
And, you know, I, so I will say as far as, again, booking a guy like Maurice Smith, former UFC heavyweight champion, uh, a good friend, of, obviously a very close friend of, of Frank Shamrock, who's your top star uh, or, if, you know, or top one or two stars. Yeah. Um, you know, he's from Seattle, so he's from Washington. So, you know, hopefully a name that's going to draw some some more ticket sales. But when your main event, your two main event guys that you're kind of banking on are – uh, you know, to sell tickets and get eyeballs on TV are Maurice Smith, who's fought before this had fought once in the last seven years and was never a great, great MMA fighter. Uh, and then Bob Sapp, a guy who's never fought in North America and is just a big, you know, like I said, circus sideshow type guy. Yeah, this is not great booking in my opinion. And, and I'm just, yeah, not a huge fan of it. So uh, yeah, not, not great. Uh, to Rufus's credit, um, you know, he did stay in MMA for about 15 months and, and Smith gave Rufus a lot of respect for stepping into the cage with him. And, uh, he said that he'd be back again, but, but in the, and he would be, but so would Rufus. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Rufus actually fought 15 times, uh, I'm sorry, 10 times in 15 months, which is, that is pretty crazy. That's pretty amazing. Nine of those fights came in 2008. So you're just getting into MMA from kickboxing. I mean, this guy, he didn't waste any time. If he was going to find out real quick, if he was, you know, had, had the chops to, to be a top level guy. And, and, and he didn't, unfortunately, he went four and six overall had losses to fellow kickboxing star, Michael, the black sniper, McDonald, Hector, sick dog, Ramirez and future UFC fighter, uh, the aforementioned late Brian Jimmo Smith would fight three more times in MMA. He would lose to Japanese Olympic gold medalist and pride veteran Hidehiko Yoshida at a Sengoku event. A few months after this event, former UFC champ would step back in the cage in 2012, getting a win before retiring for good after a 2013 loss to Matt Kovach. Uh, man, we've brought that guy's name up a lot during this episode. He, he fought in a heavyweight bout earlier on the card. Uh, Maurice, Maurice's MMA career would end at 13 and 15, but he would be inducted into the UFC hall of fame in 2017. All right. Uh, I'm sorry. We, I said this was the co-main event. We actually have one more, one more fight before we get to this. I I still would consider this to be the co-main event just based on the billing and who's on the poster. Uh, but there was another fight after this one before we got to the, uh, to the main event. Uh, and in this, the one Corey Devella defeated Joe diesel Riggs via submission from a slam at 122 of the first round. Devella was nine and two coming in with losses to Matt Horwich and head Ed Herman. So if you're going to lose to a couple guys, you know, especially at this stage in in your MA career, that those are pretty, two pretty good ones. He did have a win over UFC, uh, vet the late Soden Lodenson Cade. Uh, he was on a six fight win streak and this, but this would be a very big test for the one as discussed earlier, Riggs was dealing with some physical issues coming in. They would cut this fight short. Uh, Riggs had won both his fights since leaving the UFC, including one against Eugene Jackson at strike forces playboy mansion show. Uh, there was no, no video. I could not find any video of this fight anywhere, which is frustrating. Uh, so we do have this recap courtesy of MMA weekly Riggs tied up with the Northwest native early in the round and found his trip takedown attempt reversed by a perfectly executed hip toss. The second Riggs hit the canvas, he grimaced in pain and immediately tapped out. Nearly immobile, an EMT crew took him from the cage on a stretcher. Riggs was able to move his arms and legs, but was clearly in a great deal of pain. And Josh, I know you found a little bit more of a description of what had happened here. Yeah, Figure Four Weekly wrote about the fight and said, Corey took him over with a beautiful judo hip toss and suddenly the ref stopped it. Looks like Riggs blew out his back. Place went absolutely haywire. 
biggest pop of the night. Which is another reason why I'm frustrated I couldn't find any video of this. That The one time the crowd really went crazy during this night, and I, I can't see it because the video doesn't exist. Anyways, go ahead. Everyone was going nuts, and then they started to realize that Riggs couldn't get up. They loaded Riggs onto a backboard, and it looks like he can, he can move his legs, so he's not paralyzed. Likely blew a disc. People cheered as he was taken out of the cage. A body slam ends this contest, said Jimmy Lennon Jr., which is something you don't hear very often, um, you know, in MMA um, from the ring announcer. So that was how uh, Figure Four Weekly uh, uh, summed up the show, and uh, they had a person live at the show covering it. Yeah, which it wasn't a body slam, Mr. Lennon Jr., but, but <laughs> um, the injury was quite possibly a byproduct of, of the car crash that Riggs suffered in that lead-up to that canceled fight that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Agent Ken Pavia told MMAWeekly.com that Riggs was at the hospital having the injury checked out afterwards, but nothing was known. Nothing else was known about his condition at that time. A devil, I would actually tell MMA Junkie after the fight that Riggs had told him that he was having some back problems at the weigh-ins the previous day. Kind of interesting that he would let his opponent know that he had some some physical issues going on, but he must have been in a lot of pain. Uh, Devella would be back in Strikeforce later in the year, so we'll discuss him more on an episode then. And despite his his physical issues, Riggs would actually be back on the same show. He would not get to face. He wanted Devella in a rematch, uh, but that would not end up happening. That but they would both compete on the the Playboy Mansion two, the second event that took place there. Uh, and and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about um, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but uh, about Riggs's condition and, and the aftermath and all that as we get to the end of this show. But before we get there, we do want to talk about well. I say we want to talk about, we are compelled to talk about uh, the uh, the heavyweight main event. Yan, the giant Norte, defeated Bob the BSAP via TKO, coming from punches at 55 seconds of the first round. I, the best thing that you can say about this fight is that it end well, I guess there's two great things that you could say about this fight. is One, that it ended decisively. There's no question about there was a winner. And number two, it ended in less than a minute. So that was two positives there. Uh, but as mentioned earlier, this would be the North American debut for Bob Sapp. He was nine and two in MMA. I don't understand that. I don't know how he got nine wins, except to say there's always been a lot of whispers and rumors about fixed fights in, in Japan. So I'm not, not saying that's what happened. I don't know, but, but nine and two, when you see what his record is today, it's kind of, kind of insane to think that that's maybe, actually, he had that record at some point. Maybe he fought some of the same guys. Caesar Gracie fought. <laughs> and some of the same guys that Josh Thompson fought as well. So, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, maybe they were doing a good job. All right. Anyway, so uh, he, regardless of that, of his record, he was an absolute mega star in Japan. Uh, Sap had appeared on new in numerous commercials and TV shows in the land of the rising sun, even released a music album there, which I did not bother even trying to look for. So, so don't ask if, you know, Josh, don't waste time asking if I listen to it because I does he, look does he have any songs about Hulk Hogan on it? I, I have no, I'm not, I'm not even, it's a much, it's a macho man joke. Sorry. Yeah, go I'm not even going to go. Yes. I remember the rap album. I remember it. I, I, I want to say I maybe even bought a couple tracks off that. Uh, so anyways, well, you know, if guys like you and I aren't buying that, I don't know who is. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if Mark, if loser marks like you and me aren't wasting a few bucks on Macho Man's rap songs, 
Uh, who is? Anyways, <laughs> uh, Sapp was a star college football player for the University of Washington, so obviously was going to be a huge local favorite. He'd been drafted into the MS- NFL, but he only played one game. Uh, all, to- all told, I mean, it was his career was was very very short, but again, did make enough of an impact. He eventually made his way to pro wrestling. Was actually under contract. I did not know this, but he was under contract with WCW as a developmental wrestler when the when the company was bought by the WWF in 2001. I'm kind of surprised that uh, that Vince McMahon, maybe he just never learned that that SAP was there, but uh, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised that, that he, we didn't at least see him get a look in WWF. So I'm assuming that I'm going to assume that Vince would, uh, you know, probably didn't get to see him. So or else I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to assume Vince took a look at him and said, what we've already pushed Zeus 20 years ago. We're not going to do it again. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess you could call him the second coming of Zeus. Although, yeah, they probably had about the same amount of working ability when it came to wrestling. So, maybe, maybe it would have been Zeus 2.0. Um, but but from there, from his release from from WCW or just not getting brought to WWF, he did get featured on in a, a tough a tough man competition that was broadcasted on the FX network. I remember those tough man competitions, uh, which I guess were seen by some people from Pride, and they brought Sap in. He got training for six months before making his debut, and he would alternate fighting for Pride and K1, and he did get some big wins along the way, including uh, in kickboxing. He would beat uh, the man, Mr. Perfect, Ernesto Hoost. He actually beat him twice, which is, you know, that that's a big deal. So, uh, but regardless of whether he won or lost, Sap was a big star, and, and you know, he was he was going to be brought in to, to try to draw some eyeballs. Uh, Norte had also fought extensively in Japan. He competed in both Pride and K1, uh, but he had lost a lot more than Sap. In fact, he was only 1-5 in five in MMA, MMA coming into this bout. In kickboxing, he'd lost to Hoost. He'd lost to Jerome LeBanner. He'd lost to Krokop, who had also beaten Sap via liver kick. I don't know if you've – Josh, have you seen that fight before? I have not seen that fight. You should no. definitely check it out. It's one of those – just classic liver kicks where just he caught him and, and Sap's face just you can just see the pain just come across his 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 mush and he goes right down and, and that was all she wrote. You should definitely check that out. So that's actually a fight that Sap legitimately lost. Yes, I did actually it. feel bad yeah. for him on that one. Yes. Maybe maybe um, he started quitting after that. He's like, I never yeah, want to feel bad again. This. I, get paid whether I, I get paid whether I win or lose, so why am I going to take a bunch of punishment? So, yeah. Uh, but And, and uh, Norte had also lost to Gary Goodridge. Interestingly, one of Norte's MMA losses had come in t- 2003 against current WWE star Shinsuke Nakamura via forearm choke. I that's I'm going to have to try to find that one because Nakamura is what, like 215, 220. Mm-hmm. And so he was outweighed by a good 100 pounds, I'm sure, by Norte. And to get him down and get him in a position to get a forearm choke on him, that's that's pretty, pretty impressive. So I'm, I'm going to have to try to look for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Nakamura can't be AJ Styles. I don't know what kind of world we're living Come in. Come on. All right. No, and, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay, uh, let me just. Tie oh, that you're, okay. I see what you're saying. That basically, be this is a guy that has legit fighting skills. Yes. And yet, okay. Yeah. All right. That's like fine. like I love Nakamura. He's legit. He's crossover. Everything we know. Great entrance, charisma, and a great wrestler and a great fight. Good fighter. And yet we can't see him do anything but be a heel Japanese guy in the WWE. It That's really fair. pisses me off. That's but, yeah, fair. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. 
Well, uh, let's get to the fight itself. The Beast had Matt Human in his corner, which is nothing to sneeze at, uh, while Norte had Ray Safo. Lots of booze for the Giant, big cheers for the Beast, no touch of the gloves, lots of intensity in the mid-cage stare down, and it all went downhill from there. Sap rushed straight at Norte, clinching. Norte created some separation and started just blasting the Beast with left hands, cut him over the left eye in the process. Sap was hurt and just really wasn't offering any defense. He fell to the to the mat, and the ref stepped in and... That's your Bob Sapp right there. Um, the two embraced afterwards showing respect, which actually bugged me more than anything. Cause it's like, oh, yeah, we were in this great battle against each other, like two warriors, and it's like, nope. Uh, on the mic afterwards, Sapp told the crowd that he was dealing with a, quote, massively pulled hamstring, which limited his mobility. I don't know what that had to do with, with that fight at all, but again, I got to ask the question, how exactly did Sap have nine wins? And not including his kickboxing wins, how did he have nine MMA wins coming into this fight? Yeah, let me just say a couple things. Obviously, I've already said how I feel about Sap, uh, but it's just such a such a contrast. Like, here's this guy who looks like a million dollars, all those muscles, but yet how could he fright? Like, how could he fight like such a frightened turtle inside the cage? It's just mind-boggling. I mean, he was so scared so many of his fights and he did not really want to fight and use his body or even try to do anything it's like if he didn't hit the other guy first he quit and so let me just say that that's what bothers me most about sap obviously great respect this guy's won fights he's won kickboxing fights he's a tough guy he's an athlete he's played football okay great but my thing is that if you're gonna do this don't quit don't 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 give up at the first sign of adversity. You know, we we don't watch MMA, you know, I mean some people are aspiring MMA fighters, but a lot of people who watch MMA are just like watching because they want to be inspired by the heroes who step in there and give it their all and do their best. And Bob Sapp was just sort of the antithesis of that. And that's what really bugged me in that he just quit. He gave up and he was acting as though i don't know if he is i'm not going to call him this but he he had a lot of cowardly tendencies after there was adversity and that's i think what bothers me especially in strike force when we're talking about all these other great fighters who are putting in so much effort you know at one point i think i saw sap grab him and close his eyes i mean it was like this guy used to fight with his eyes closed you know um you know, it, it looked like he was preparing to get hit or something. And he just, Bob Sapp just looked so uncomfortable inside the cage. And uh, I just did not like his fighting style. Um, I, I think he just gave up way too early. And maybe I'm judging him harshly because he's so big and intimidating. And therefore, I think, well, yeah, he must be a, a tough guy too in terms of how he fights. Um, and also, it's kind of like everything bad about MMA when you book a guy based off of how he looks instead of his skills. Uh, Figure Four Weekly, Phil, put it this way. There was a moderate pop for the upset, and then immediately everyone was filing out of the building. You never saw people leave as fast as they did right here. They came, they saw Bob, they didn't even seem to care all that much that he lost, and then left. And by left, I mean they were running for the exits. Uh, wow, Jan was so happy afterwards, Bob less so. He was bleeding bad from the eye and was very unhappy about the stoppage. Fight went 55 seconds. Yeah, that's a pretty good encapsulation of everything that you just said was 
how I feel about Bob as a fighter. Again, nothing personal, nothing, you know, like an issue with him as a person. I don't know anything about him as a person, but as a fighter, it's exactly what you said there. It just, it just seemed to be so cowardly the way that it was like, he's there just to earn a paycheck, no pride, no sense of self-respect. Just, I'm just here to, and as soon as any sort of adversity came, he would just, just give up. And, and that was, and I saw it happen more than once. And it's just very, very frustrating to see. So, yeah, I, I agree 100%. Thankfully, this would be the only time we would ever see either fighter in, a, in the Strike Force cage. In fact, this would actually be the last one of any kind for Norte as he would lose two kickboxing bouts and one more MMA bout, which was a knockout loss to Sokaju for Dream in Japan in 2009, which ended his MMA career at 2-6. and six. He was actually still only 34 when his career ended. He looked a lot older than me. I, I assume he did a lot of – or I say I assume he – I'm guessing he did a lot of partying. Um, I, I don't know. Cause he, man, he still didn't look in here. I mean, this is a year before that. So he was 33 at this point, maybe 32. And, and yeah, he looked, looked a lot older than I do at 38. So, uh, but anyways, Sap would continue to fight, but would just start suffering a ton of losses. He lost to Ikehisu Minowa, uh, who he must've outweighed by close to 200 pounds. Then he took a loss to Bobby Sashley, uh, Lashley, and then to Sokaju. At one point, he actually lost 14 MMA fights in a row, which included losses to Hollis Gracie, James Thompson, Marius Pujanowski, uh, uh, Soa Palele, and Alexander Emelianenko. Somehow, someway, though, Sapp seems to have ended his career on a high note. He beat Kentaro Osunorashi by decision in Ryzen almost exactly two years ago as we record this in Osunorashi's only, his, in his only fight, so... Obviously, he was. I think. I think Onusarashi was a. Uh, uh, what do they call those? Uh, a sumo guy. So not not exactly a, a really experienced guy, but yeah. Just I'm glad this is over. I'm glad we don't have to talk anymore about this. Uh, I'm glad we can move on, and and Sap probably won't even come up again. Uh, you, you in agreement with on, on that, Josh? Well, unless he shows up at your door to complain yeah, yeah. about how you're talking about him. Yeah, he you know. doesn't know where I live in town. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't I don't think we're going to be talking much more about Bob Sapp unless he makes a return to, uh, to Bellator or something. <laughs> yeah, but this was very much an ugly, ugly event. I, I'm, you know, was not something, I think it was a big step back for, for Strike Force. I, I just don't think there's any question about that. But anyways, uh, you know, they did draw pretty well. I mean, it was 17,000 seat uh, uh, stadium at the, or, or arena that they were in. 7,000 fans paying to be there, paid 283,000, set a non-pro wrestling state combat sports record for Washington, uh, according to Figure Four Weekly. So, you know, it was still a financially, I think, somewhat of a successful event. Uh, you know, obviously don't know what the TV side of it did, but, you know, of course, the the when you see him, we'll, we'll get in the salaries right here. Sap got a hundred thousand of those, you know, $283,000. So, you know, I, I don't know how much they, they really end up clearing on that, but uh, he should have given some of that to Norte who only got 15,000 in, in comparison, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. I don't like the pay scales in MMA at all. I don't, I mean, I guess you could argue that, you know, we're picking on Sap here, but Really, it's the guys at the bottom of the card. I think should be making more money. I don't think Sap should be making a hundred grand for fighting for fifty-five seconds. But 
it's just, you know, these other guys, just they just don't make much money. And I think that's always been one of the challenges of MMA. And it's not just because Strikeforce was an up-and-coming promotion. The same thing still happens in, in the UFC today. There's a handful of guys who make a lot of money, Conor McGregor and John Jones and Daniel Cormier and those type level. But a lot of the guys you see up until that point in the card, they're struggling too. There's no no doubt about that. And, you know, we, we'll go through some of the other pay, payouts. Maurice Smith earned 30000 Rick Rufus earned fifteen. Joe Riggs got fifteen. George Masvidal got twenty, And Lyle Beerbaum only got 2000 So there's a huge discrepancy there. And unfortunately, we still see that today. I mean, fighters make more. But there are fighters in the UFC that get fifteen or 20000 And that's one of the higher pays, you know, on a part, you know, like a UFC fight night or something like that. So despite this card taking place 12 years ago, as we record this, the, the pay has not scaled up nearly as, as much, much as it should have. Uh, but that's a discussion for another day. And I do actually, I do want to get into that discussion at some point with somebody that knows more about it than, than you or I do. But, um, you know, I, I think something should happen and, you know, we'll see. But, uh, speaking of rigs, I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk a little bit more about what happened to him after this. A couple days after the event it was revealed by MMA Weekly that he would be undergoing surgery to repair spinal damage he suffered in the develop fight. Diesel actually revealed he thought he was paralyzed after the slam, which was a very scary moment. He would recover, as I mentioned. He would fight five months after this, but he would never get the Devella rematch uh, that he desired, unfortunately. But at least he would fully recover after these back issues and, and be able to get back into the cage. You know, overall... I, yeah, I mean, decent is probably not. Uh, I think it was decent from a production standpoint. The, again, the commentary was much improved. The presentation was better. There were some entertaining fights. But when the last three fights consist of a 46-year-old former star taking on a guy making his MMA debut, an injury-shortened bout, and then a brutally bad main event, it's just it's hard to mark down this event as a big win. On top of that, I mean, there's literally zero recognizable fighters on this card uh, as, as far as from the Strike Force brand. No Shamrock, no Kung Lee, no Josh Thompson, no Gilbert Melendez, not even Luke Stewart. So definitely not one of the you know it's definitely one of the in the bottom of the the. Uh, the bucket as far as top strike force events. But give us your, your overall thoughts, Josh. Probably there were people who watched this show because of Bob Sapp and maybe never watched MMA again, which is probably the biggest disappointment is that when you do have these, these, these uh, main eventers who are super prominent or famous, but aren't great MMA fighters or they they have some sort of other sport background. You kind of want to use them to draw people to the sport, to highlight, look at all the undercard stuff. And uh, we didn't really get much rub, as we would say. You know, the, Bob Sapp didn't really rub off onto anyone. So I think that was the biggest kind of disappointment. It just felt like kind of a bad show for Strike Force, one that was forgettable. And uh, I don't think it did them any damage in the long run in terms of their history and their legacy. I think it just like it didn't exist. It was just sort of over and done with and they moved on. Figure Four Weekly said this about the show. The show was in many ways an experiment. They went to a new market with a localized money main event and stocked up the undercard with other local talent that hopefully would sell tickets to their friends. As noted, it was the pro wrestling indie model. All I know is that it didn't work. You could say it did work because the main event drew a lot of money, but the reality is that it came that 
if they came back here, they probably would only do 3,000 fans max. And to me, that's a failure. That's quoting figure four uh, weekly. And then just a little side note. Um, I know we have some exceptions to this. James Lights Out Tony fought Randy Couture. And of course, we've talked about CM Punk. And there's probably a couple of other examples. But the show kind of made me appreciate Dana White. Because one thing about the early UFC was, or I should say the the, the Fertitta brothers, Dana White era of the UFC. One thing about them was that they always made it feel like it was special. Like, like if you were watching UFC, you were cool. That it was something that was fresh and new. Uh, you know, you'd go, it was so popular at sports bars people would have people over for parties and it was like this was the in thing and largely that was because of Dana White treating it that way and making it feel like a great promoter like it was unique and special so it, this card kind of made me have a little bit of appreciation of him and that we didn't see a lot of that stuff with you know, post, I guess, you know, 2006, 2007, when the UFC started to sort of uh, take take off. Um, obviously, Dana White could have booked Bob Sapp, but he knows that would have probably hurt the credibility of other fighters. So anyway, I liked, uh, I, I appreciated the Dana White aspect, but again, the fight, the, the show came and gone and it's not really gonna, it's not really a part of Strike Force's history at all. Yeah, thankfully, this was, uh, we didn't see a ton of these types of fights going forward. So, uh, you know, I, th I think we kind of get back on the right, and we definitely, looking at what we have coming up, we definitely get back on the right track. Uh, I will mention coming up next, we'll be publishing an interview episode with MMA Junkies Gorgeous George Garcia. I mentioned that uh, earlier in the show. It's actually next next Monday as this show drops. Uh, that that chat is going to drop, and we really we go into the influence of Strike Force's talent on the UFC and Bellator even into today. It's a really great conversation. George shares some really cool stories, including when he learned that Strike Force was being sold to the UFC and some different stuff like that. So we dive into a lot of really good stuff in that conversation. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. And then, as I mentioned, we get back at strike force gets back on the right track. Uh, we cover a barn burner of an event in Shamrock versus Lee, where you guessed it, Frank Shamrock and Kung Lee finally lock horns for the strike force middleweight title. As we record this, I actually watched that event uh, yesterday and, and watched the, the Shamrock Lee fight last night. And it just, it gave me goosebumps. I mean, the crowd was as hot for anything as, I mean, it just, it was incredible. The, the, the atmosphere, uh, so it was great and it's a great fight. It's such an entertaining fight. And, and so it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to cover that. And then after that, we are scheduled to have Kung Lee on the show. I've already interviewed him. We'll be running that in a couple weeks. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. That's a good chat too, but got some really great stuff coming up. So make sure uh, that you have subscribed and just, you know, I want to mention real quick, the way we do the show, it's a narrative, you know, we go in, in, in order, we're going in chronological order of the events. So uh, if you haven't, you know, if this is your first episode, make sure you go back and listen to our previous episodes so you can kind of see the evolution of the promotion strike force as we go along. But I did want to mention that also mention we are on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at inside the hexagon pod uh, on Twitter. It's hex at hexagon pod, but you can also look uh, search for inside the hexagon pod and we'll come up on there as well. You can also reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. I would love to hear from you. would love to get some direct feedback from some of our listeners. You know, do you want the shows to have more detail, less detail? Uh, you know, who do you want to see on the show? Anybody you want us to try to, to get an interview with, those sorts of things. So tweet, uh, post, DM, 
whatever it is, or email, let us know. Also, make sure you rate and review the show. Please rate, uh, please rate the show and review it as well. Um, don't don't just do one or the other, but but please do both. But we would love to see more reviews uh, as well. But yeah, just want to hear more from our fans and, and want to make sure that we are delivering the content that you want to hear. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that everybody stays safe and stays healthy. Josh, thank you for, for taking the time to join us on, on the show. Love getting your insight. Love the back and forth. Well, Phil, thank you for all your extensive research, which allows me to try to do the Jesse Ventura role. And I have to tell you, you know, my fans want more wrestling commentary (laughs) in your podcast. (laughs) Hit me up, people at Fill It Inside the x and let me know if that's really what you want to do. All right, but again, with that, we're going to go ahead and take off. But stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you soon. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.